As a matter of fact, it was. Shh, it's the milk flavors. Hey guys, I'm Chris. Hey everybody, I'm Robert. And we're the Film Flamers. And today we're talking about a big one. Yep, we're finally deep diving into John Carpenter's 1978 Halloween. That's right. Uh, a long time coming. Is this the first time we've talked about a John Carpenter movie in a deep dive? Uh, we've mentioned John Carpenter and his movies all over our podcast through, throughout the years, I believe. I think we have a bonus episode on They Live, right? So we have talked some some Carpenter. Yeah, we've talked about, you know, the creature effects in, like, uh, The Thing and Rob Botton. And we've talked about Black Christmas and talked a lot about Halloween and that. So, yeah, we've, we've been talking around this for about, I don't know, almost four years. That's right. <laughs> so the time has come for us to talk about Halloween. Yes. So Halloween is a 1978 American independent slasher film directed and scored by John Carpenter, co-written by producer Deborah Hill and starring Donald Pleasance and Jamie Lee Curtis in her film debut. The plot follows an escaped mental patient returning to his hometown after 15 years, where he stalks a babysitter and her friends while being pursued by his psychiatrist. Primarily praised for Carpenter's direction and score, many critics credit the film as being the first in a long line of slashers inspired by Hitchcock's Psycho and Bob Clark's Black Christmas. Halloween went on to become one of the most profitable independent movies of all time and spawned a sprawling franchise that would create a huge backstory for his villain, Michael Myers. Okay, listeners. Do you believe in the boogeyman? This is totally Halloween. (laughs) Totally. (laughs) Totally. (laughs) Halloween night. A small American town, 15 years ago. Michael? I spent eight years trying to reach him, and then another seven trying to keep him locked up because I realized that what was living behind that boy's eyes was purely and simply evil. I think he'll come back. Exploring uncharted territory. Totally charted. Oh. Sure, sure. Mm-hmm. The only reason she babysits is to have Halloween. Stay for this thing. Oh, we can't. He came home. On Halloween night, 1963, in Haddonfield, Illinois, six-year-old Michael Myers watches his sister, Judith, through the windows of their home. 
She heads upstairs with her boyfriend for some sexy time, and Michael enters the house. Once their coitus is complete, the boyfriend leaves, and Michael stabs Judith to death. He is incarcerated to Smith's Grove Sanitarium, and 15 years later, on October 30th, 1978, Michael's psychiatrist, Dr. Samuel Loomis, played by Donald Pleasance, travels there to escort Michael to a court hearing. Dr. Loomis hopes that this hearing will forever keep Michael locked away at the hospital. However, as Dr. Loomis arrives at night during a thunderstorm, he finds the other inmates wandering by the road, obviously after some kind of mass escape due to a power outage. After a kerfuffle with his colleague, Michael steals their car, because evil has a license to drive and kill. <laughs> Dr. Loomis assumes that Michael is headed back to Haddonfield, and follows his tracks. Upon his arrival to his hometown, Michael finds something on his face. Some thing. A mask resembling a certain space captain. <laughs> back in Haddonfield on Halloween morning, High school student Lori Strode, played by Jamie Lee Curtis, drops a key off at the long-abandoned Myers house as her father is trying to sell it. Michael spies on her through a window, and she notices him stalking her throughout the day. But her friends Annie, played by Nancy Kyes, and Linda, played by PJ Souls, dismiss her claims. That night, Lori is to babysit Tommy Doyle, while Annie babysits Lindsay Wallace, directly across the street. Linda is going to join Annie later on, so she can hang out with her boyfriend. Dr. Loomis makes his way to Haddonfield and discovers that Judith Meyer's headstone has been stolen from the cemetery. He meets with the local sheriff, played by Charles Cyphers, whom he tells that Michael is pure evil. The sheriff is doubtful, but patrols the streets while Dr. Loomis waits at the Meyer's home, expecting his return. Michael has followed the young babysitters to their jobs and spies on them. He kills the Wallace's dog, and Tommy sees him through the window. He tells Lori that he has seen the boogeyman, but she doesn't believe him. After learning that her boyfriend can come over and have some sexy time, Annie drops Lindsay off with Lori and heads to her car to pick up the boyfriend. But Michael is waiting in the back seat. He begins to strangle her and slits her throat. Soon after, Linda and her boyfriend Bob arrive at the Wallace house, but find Annie missing. Taking advantage of the empty house, they go upstairs to fuck. Big mistake. Huge. Bob goes downstairs to the kitchen post-fuck, and Michael pins him to the wall with a knife, killing him. He goes upstairs where Linda is in bed, but wears a ghost costume with Bob's glasses on to fool her. She teases him, but she gets no response, so she angrily calls Lori to see where Annie is. Michael strangles Linda with a telephone cord as Lori listens, thinking it's a prank. Meanwhile, Dr. Loomis finds his stolen car and begins to patrol the streets on foot. Lori, growing suspicious of the phone call, goes across the street to check on her friends, but discovers all of their bodies, as well as Judith's headstone. She flees to the hallway in sheer terror, but Michael suddenly appears from the dark. He slashes at her, cutting her blouse and arm. Startled, Lori falls over the stairway banister to the floor below. Lori narrowly escapes back to the Doyle house and orders Lindsay and Tommy to hide. She attempts to call for help, but finds the phone line dead, apparently also brutally murdered. <laughs> Michael creeps in through a window and attacks her, but she stabs him in the neck with a knitting needle. Believing him dead, Lori goes to check on the children, like a good babysitter. She's shocked when she sees Michael alive, and sends the kids to hide in the bathroom. 
She hides in the closet, but readies a wire hanger, Joan Crawford's weapon of choice. Michael breaks into the closet, and she stabs him in the eye with a hanger, and then in the chest with his own knife. Believing him dead, Lori sends the kids down the street to call for help. Once again, Michael awakes and attacks Lori. Loomis sees the kids running from the house and goes to investigate. He finds Michael and Lori fighting upstairs. Lori rips off Michael's mask, making him hesitate, and Michael runs into Loomis's bullet. He runs into Loomis's bullet six times. (laughs) He ran into my bullet. He ran into my bullet six times. That's great. Sending him out the window, falling to the ground below. Lori asks Loomis if that was the boogeyman, and he says, Yeah. (laughs) He heads over to the window and looks out, only to find Michael's body missing. He stares off into the night as Lori begins to sob. Her wire hanger didn't quite work as well as she had hoped. Suddenly, she yells out, Lindsay, bring me the axe! (laughs) Oh my god. I need to start opening these documents after I've like completed them because I never know what you put on it. I mean, I go through your notes, but I never reread the synopsis. <laughs> Lindsay, <laughs> bring me the axe. The end. No, of not course not. not. No. I mean, it would go on and on to much ridiculousness. Feeding yes. that Michael Myers horse into chunky salsa, and they're still doing it. So, but. Uh, kind of better than the sequels, I would say, but that's for another conversation. Mm. So uh, Halloween premiered on October 25th, 1978 in Kansas City, Missouri, and then spread to 198 theaters across the U.S., 72 of which were in New York City and 98 in Southern California. The film became a hit, earning more than $47 million domestically with a global box office of $70 million. The budget for the film was roughly $325,000, so it was truly profitable during its first release, making over 20 times its budget. In 1980, the television rights were sold to NBC, and Halloween finally aired on television in October of 1981. To fill a two-hour time slot, Carpenter filmed additional scenes while he was filming the sequel. Hmm. Halloween holds a 96% on Rotten Tomatoes and is certified fresh. The audience score sits at 89%, and the site's consensus reads, Scary, suspenseful, and viscerally thrilling, Halloween set the standard for modern horror films. Metacritic has given it a score of 87. Upon its initial release, many critics seemed uninterested or dismissive of the film. Pauline Kael wrote a scathing review in The New Yorker in which she suggested that Carpenter doesn't seem to have a life outside of the movies. One can trace almost every idea on the screen to directors like Hitchcock and De Palma or to Val Luton Productions. She went on to write, Maybe when a horror film is stripped of everything but dumb scariness, when it isn't afraid to revive the stalest device in the genre, it satisfies part of the audience in a more basic childish way than more sophisticated horror pictures do. She's not wrong. I mean, no. I mean, it's a very basic movie. But I don't... Yeah. No. Like, I I think she's spot on, but I don't agree with her tone. You know what I mean? Like, I think that's a good thing. Yeah. In in this particular case. Yeah. I mean, like, we were just talking about another Who movie that I watched recently that... It's completely unoriginal, but was very intense. And I think that Halloween sort of fits that mold. Well, she said stripped down. It's inspired, but strips those down into their more base forms. And I think that's a kind of a wise thing to do, Mm. at least in this movie, at least how it was pulled off. And I think there's an alchemy here, but we'll get into that a little bit later. Of course. Uh, 
Roger Ebert was a little more kind, referring to it as a visceral experience. We aren't seeing the movie, we're having it happen to us. Maybe you don't like scary movies, then don't see this one. He would later go on to call it one of his top 10 favorite movies of 1978. In the decades following its release, critics have praised the film's camera work, restrained violence, and have called its comparisons to Psycho silly and groundless, which is probably true. Yeah, I don't really see a whole lot of Psycho in this. Like, eh, I mean, besides the knife, you know, but yeah. I mean, that's it. And, and, <laughs> and Jamie Lee Curtis, slasher, you know, you I know. mean, yeah. So it did uh, have a, a little bit of accolades and legacy. At the Saturn Awards, it was nominated for Best Horror Movie, but lost to The Wicker Man. Please. And that's it. So, well, at least as far as awards go. Of course, the film has been on many lists over the years. In fact, AFI ranked it number 68 on its 100 Years, 100 Thrills list. It was number 14 on Bravo's 100 Scariest Movie Moments. And in 2006, Halloween was selected for preservation in the United States National Film Registry by the Library of Congress as being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. I wonder if we've gained up to 10 movies now. That have been added to the Library of Congress. It feels like it. I think we're past 10 at this point. Maybe we should just collect them and be like, these are the horror movies that we've covered. We really need to start a Library list. Of yeah. yeah. We should start another, like a Library of Congress list of horror movies on uh, Letterboxd. We should do a Film Flamers of Congress list too and just start adding <laughs> things ourselves, right? <laughs> As we said earlier, Halloween was the first in a very long franchise with seven sequels that followed. Carpenter and Hill teamed up for Halloween 2, although he didn't direct. They wanted to finish the story between Michael and Laurie. It begins immediately following the events of the original. The third installment, Season of the Witch, removes Michael Myers from the story, but he returns for all the subsequent films. A remake of the original film directed by Rob Zombie was released in 2007, which itself had a sequel in 2009. An 11th installment was released in 2018, and uh, this film, directed by David Gordon Green, is a direct sequel to the original, disregarding all of the previous sequels from canon and retconning the ending of the first film. It's a lot. There's a lot of Halloween out there in the world for those who like it. That's right. And, I mean, I think this may be, I don't know, it may be a good time to talk about some of the sequels. Like, I... I don't really care for them that much. No, no. I mean, I I think that as as they progress, like the backstory gets really fucking silly and doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Mm-hmm. Like it doesn't make sense that Lori and Michael are brother and sister. You know? Well, like with any franchise fatigue, it becomes a product, you know, yeah. and it just feels hollow. You know, you've got to have someone with a soul and that really, really cares about it and for the right reasons doing it Mm -hmm. versus like hiring a writer to just make this happen or hiring a director. Right. So that's what we got in David Gordon Green, I think. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And to a certain extent, Rob Zombie, I feel like Rob Zombie really cared about the movie he was making. It's just not for me. The one thing I do appreciate in his films is that he gives further backstory to a younger Michael. Yeah. And sort of explains why he is the way he is. It's just such a wet Grinch salad. Yeah. Yeah, it's super I, depressing. The super like uh, the thing that really bugged me about that was just and, and the most disturbing thing about the whole movie to me was the beginning. Yeah. Really, like the interaction of that family just made me sick. It, like literally made me nauseous. And maybe I need to see it again, but uh I don't want to. Yeah, I really don't either. I mean, the one time was <laughs> enough. So although I did like uh that actor as Loomis. I even forgot who did it. Uh he's been in a lot. He was in Clockwork Orange as the main Oh, actor. Malcolm McDowell. Yeah, Malcolm McDowell. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've almost completely blocked that movie from my mind, except for the beginning of it. Mm-hmm. And the sequel was 
good. I, I kind of like the sequel better than the first one, but it was still kind of weird. And um, I've just seen better Rob Zombie movies, but we're not here to talk about that. Nope. We're here to talk about the original from 1978. So let's get started. Let's. So let's start with those credits. Oh, my God. I mean, like, I think those, the credits in this movie are super effective. It really sets up the tone of this movie and it, in a very, like, minimal kind of way. Well, right? Kind of like an overture, right? Because yeah. the, all, we don't get any kind of scene behind it, right? It's just that pumpkin mm-hmm. and it's just black. And then it's like all of those titles. And one thing that I thought was actually funny was it's like Donald Pleasance in Halloween. And then, you know, like, I'm just like, what? <laughs> <laughs> because at that time, the snapshot, it's kind of a snapshot of that time. Like Jamie Lee Curtis was not known at all. You no. know what I mean? I mean, she may have been known as being the daughter of Janet Lee. Not even, she had her own TV, TV show at the time. Like mm-hmm. she was in a TV show, but I think they were on break while she filmed this. And that was basically it. Like he didn't even know who she was until someone pointed it out. Like where she came from. Yeah. And I've always liked to think that he was like going after her because of her like, you know, lineage or whatever. But I mean, that's just not the case. I think that he just hired an actress or whatever. Well, yeah, I have some notes on that coming up, but yeah. uh, let's continue on because that, of course, in in the Halloween 2, they continue that with that pumpkin. Of course, that one's a little bit more complex. The pumpkin kind of splits apart and you see a skull, uh-huh. you know, but um, I don't know. I prefer the simplicity of this one. I do, too. I just think it's really, really effective. Um, and I mean, the, the music in this movie is, is great. I think that like John Carpenter's score is fantastic yeah. and timeless, really. Well, it puts so, you in the mood. It's like yeah. an overture. Exactly. I mean, it's exactly what it is. Yeah. I I love it. Although like Donald Pleasance, I mean, I'm not quite sure American audiences really knew who he was. Right. We do now, but solely based on Halloween. So having him top build like that is kind of. Yeah. I don't know. It, It probably gave some, you know, some cred. Yeah, in the industry, bit. maybe a little bit. Uh, but then we get that single shot POV opening with the Panaglide camera, right? Yeah. Or they, they use that and that at another point in the movie, too. But like the, the whole camera is just like effortlessly floating around the house yeah. and sort of like peering in through windows, sort of voyeuristically. Yeah. Right. Watching his sister, you know, go upstairs and have sex with her boyfriend and, and whatnot. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite Parts of that POV shot is when uh, he puts the clown mask on Mm -hmm. and you can just see only through the two eyes of the mask. Which is actually a cut. Right. So it's not a single shot. Yeah. It's made to look like it. Yeah. Yeah. But there are some cuts. But uh, yeah, I mean, so I mean, it's really good. And when he picks up the knife and stuff like that, you can only see his hand picking up the knife. So, you know, it's a child, you know, like it's just a really, really good opening of this movie. Yeah. And and of course, there's a lot of um, inspirations. That go into that. But yeah. I think at the end of the day, he was going for simplicity. Mm-hmm. Right. And, um, you know, I think you, you've noticed like when he comes out after he stabs his sister to death, you know, and he has that standing there with the bloody knife or whatever. It's meant to be kind of an iconic scene, you know, almost like a, like a weird, like reverse nativity or something with his parents coming in and kind of just staring at him. Like it's a painting or something, you know, and I, and I get all that, but I mean like my, my adult brain when I'm watching this movie now, maybe as opposed to when I was a teenager or something, when I first saw it, I was just like, why are these parents just standing here? Watching their child hold this bloody knife. I'm like, get it away from him. Take it out of his hand. I'm like, God, terrible parenting in the 70s. Jesus. Maybe they just didn't take over responsibility from the babysitter yet. We can't do this. It's her job. (laughs) What? Their dead daughter who should have been babysitting? Job security. (laughs) After that scene, we move on to the actual bulk of the movie, right? So flash forward to like 15 years later, 1978, and Dr. Loomis, whom we get to meet as he's driving with his chain-smoking nurse uh, up to the asylum, Smith's Grove, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, because up to this point, it was all visual storytelling with basically no dialogue. 
uh, that was important, right? It was all just like basic chit chat between the, you know, his sister and her boyfriend. Right. And that was it. And now we're getting some exposition with Dr. Loomis as they drive towards the asylum. Uh, and then we we basically see the overly dramatic thunder that actually doesn't light up anything except for <laughs> their faces. <laughs> like it's literally like booming thunder and you see the lightning, but it's not lighting anything up. Because <laughs> no. it's just like a flashlight on their faces or something. You can see the the lack of budget, you know, lack of the, the constraints in this movie. But, you know, you forgive it because there's a lot of heart. Um, but, yeah, that's a great scene. It is. I mean, I, I kind of like the, the sound of the rain on the car, right? And the nurse, like, chain-smoking and sort of, like, peering out the window in it, the darkness. And, it definitely feels like Hitchcock here. Yeah. I mean, there, there is there is some atmosphere, some Hitchcock, Hitchcockian atmosphere being built. Maybe a little sure. Argento, maybe a little Mario Bava. <laughs> when even those people borrowed from Hitchcock a lot. Oh, yeah. You know, I, I think that a lot of people making horror movies in the 70s or even making horror adjacent movies in the 70s was borrowing a lot from Hitchcock just because of like the show brilliance of his films. Yeah. Right? But this is also where we get like the almost like a too self-serious at this point. Uh, it hasn't really earned it's how self-serious it is where he's like referring to Michael already as it, as evil, you know, and they do kind of hang a lantern on it by the nurse in the car with him mm-hmm. or whatever she is kind of saying, oh, I love your empathy, you know. She's like, don't you mean him? <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. It's meant to be dehumanizing. Right. I mean, and like he, he does that throughout the movie, too. Like he truly does believe that Michael is evil, obviously. Right. Because he he stops at nothing to tell people exactly how he feels about it. It's a, I feel like as a bad doctor, it just reminds me of watching The Good Son recently. It was like evil is a concept people create because they don't understand or don't want to. It's kind of lazy. You know what I mean? Right. There's always a reason. And uh, I don't know. But but John Carpenter, if you like look at it kind of non-diegetically, he is trying to create something that's more of a force. Right. He, he talks about it in the classroom in a scene coming up where they talk about fate even. That's true. And I mean, like during that POV opening, like we said, there's very limited dialogue. Most of the dialogue is people saying Michael. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, like he truly drives home what his name is. And then we have another character who just refers to him as evil. Right. He, like one of my favorite parts in this movie is when Michael steals the car and he's like, he's gone from here. The evil's escaped or something <laughs> like that. I'm like, calm down. <laughs> yeah. Like, Jesus. It's a little over the top. <laughs> So it almost feels like Frankenstein in a way, like like the old horror movies. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I'm like sure the lightning's flashing in the background, and it's like it has escaped. The evil has left the premises. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, like honestly, he probably drew a lot of inspiration from that too. You know, I mean, so I never really thought about that, but you're right. I mean, it has that really like old school, you know, 1930s level of overacting. So but there is something about like just the black background of that night and seeing all those those asylum people in white just milling around. Yeah, just know? milling about in the fucking yard and they're like hospital gowns i mean it is kind of scary and then michael myers slaps the window (laughs) (laughs) yeah he doesn't even try he's like and it breaks right (laughs) he like leaps up onto the car like velociraptor style or whatever you know yeah but uh at that point you know our movie has begun the story is is pretty going pretty fast paced at this point and he actually starts stalking those people that are kind of centered around that house right he sees laurie strode and he identifies her with the sister i think that's what we're kind of meant to to yeah or at least all the girls maybe yeah you know Whore of Babylon. (laughs) Horse, all of them, except for Lori, right? I really do like the setup of this scene. I think it's one of the the better scenes in the movie. And we kind of get an idea of who these characters are very, very quickly, just based on their dialogue together, right? Like the girls walking home from school at the end of the day, sort of making fun of Lori for being, you know, bookish and smart and not having dates and not being worried about having sex or things like that or dances. But... It's super interesting because 
like she sees Michael Myers like all day that day. Yeah, like outside the classroom window when they're talking about fate. And uh, yeah, and then later, like driving down the street, which was also kind of expertly filmed to not yeah. really show me much detail in his face. And then kind of behind the hedge later on, that's a very, very famous scene right there. And that's then, one of my favorite scenes in the movie, too. Well, I mean, yeah. Shots, at least, because I mean, like, you have Michael Myers, like, just standing there looking at Laurie, right? But really, he's looking at the camera and, by proxy, the audience, right? So mm-hmm. it's super effective. Yeah, it's it, that's true. But it also is the first kind of hint that that Dr. Loomis actually might be right, that something's maybe a little bit more supernatural is going on here. And they do kind of walk that tightrope with, like, is he or isn't he? Yeah. <laughs> as far as supernatural or not. Well, and they call him the boogeyman a yeah. lot throughout the movie, Evil. right? Yeah. The, so... You know. Like he's just like some sort of vessel, you know? Yes, exactly. That's what he's getting at. They're kind of alluding to a lot of things here, mm-hmm. but the audience is still not sure. And they're not meant to be sure. And it's during these scenes that we sort of understand that he is in town. We know he's in town, but Dr. Loomis has showed up as well. And he's enlisted the sheriff, like we said in the synopsis. Right. Mm-hmm. And we sort of like move on into like the actual scarier nighttime parts of this movie. Right. So we're getting to the point where uh, we've kind of met our kids. We've met the the babysitters. And now they're all kind of going to where they're supposed to be for the night, right? right? Which is babysitting the kids in those different, you know, houses. We're reconvening with Annie, who is uh, about to try and pick up her boyfriend by dropping off the the kid, the kid <laughs> Lindsay. Yeah, I guess the kid Lindsay uh, over to um, Lori Strode's babysitting house. Yeah, she's just pawning all this work off on Lori, right? Yeah, which Lori doesn't have a problem with because you know if she wanted to, she would, but. Yeah, I mean, she's a good babysitter. I mean, mm. and like, uh, they they go way out of their way to make her as unsexy as possible in this movie, I think. I mean, she's carrying around like knitting with her. Like, she brought it to school. She takes it to her babysitting job. I mean, she honestly cares about the kids, right? And the other girls are not. She's the studio's brunette, right? Yeah. She's answering the, even not paying attention in class, she's able to answer that question. Exactly. And, I know. mean, she's super smart. Yeah. I mean, she's quoting things totally. that. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, you could totally see. See, I just said it. You can totally see. Catchphrase. <laughs> While they're doing this, they're really setting her apart from these other girls and creating this, like, hero. And what would eventually become, like, one of the biggest tropes in slasher movies. Mm-hmm. So. That's right. Uh, I don't know if this is a per- you know like the beginning of that trope, but you know there's a there's a debate to be had there. No, because in fact, I think that one of the first final girls, eventually, I mean, before this, was like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Right? Sure, yeah, you know, along with Black Christmas, and, and even yeah, even before that, Black Christmas. You know? Yeah, but the chasteness of it all, I don't yeah. know, you know, because I think there was a final girl. Didn't the girl who was like um, was a new exchange or whatever? <laughs> Yeah, she lived as well. Didn't yeah, she? Uh, yeah. I think I think so. I don't know. Well, one it's of the other girls did too. But yeah, I mean, like, there's a fine line. I mean, I, we're going to talk about later on in this discussion about how everyone like calls Halloween the first of all these things, right? It's not. It's and not it's the first not. of any, um, basically anything. It's just the first to really like condense it and like, you know, purify it. And probably maybe one of the most you know mainstream movies to come out. I mean, we'll, we'll and get even then, that, I think yeah. Black Christmas is you know pretty pure i don't know yeah no i would agree too i mean i'm sure we'll have a whole discussion about that later on yeah we get to themes and stuff like that so so then we have sexy times right uh she well he's killed annie at this point right yeah kills the dog and uh kills annie 
and uh, you know the other kids go over to the to the house, realizing they're alone and, and have their sexy times. That's right. And um, so uh, we have PJ Souls and yep. and her boyfriend, right, Bob, mm-hmm. and uh, not Dennis Quaid. Yeah, <laughs> I'm so glad you told me that earlier. Uh, yeah, so I mean, Bob goes downstairs to get something from the kitchen, maybe a beer or something like that, and he gets pinned to the wall. And Michael Myers has that famous like head tilt when he's looking at him. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the only piece of direction he got, actually. Really? By the way. Oh yeah. my God. He said uh, he would ask for direction, and John Carpenter would say, "You get no direction. You just go from point to point, stage direction to stage direction. That's all you get is stage directions, essentially." And the only direction he got was that head tilt. He's like, "I want you to act like you're looking at a butterfly collection." Wow. Yep. I like that. See, and here I've always thought that that was just Nick Castle doing that shit. Nope. You know what I mean? Okay. <laughs> well, good for you, John Carpenter. But yeah, he goes upstairs and finds PJ Souls. But, you know, Michael has put on the sheet and put on Bob's glasses, you know, to try to like prank her, but maybe make her feel at ease before he kills her. And then Lori hears her get strangled over the phone. Yeah. Know? Right. Yeah. So like Lori has started to realize that maybe things are amiss. And we get another. She puts, yeah, she puts the kids to bed and then goes to Nancy Drew. Yeah, she goes over to like check things out. And we get another trope that would come up in a lot of slasher movies the discovery of all the bodies. Yeah, right? and there's she, he's collected the other bodies and put them all in one room for, for whatever reason. Yeah. But the stupid headstone, <laughs> it looks so just hokey to me. Every time I see that goddamn headstone in that bed, I'm just like, what are you doing? Well, it looks really fucking big to me, like much bigger than a normal headstone. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, you know. And I mean, if it's Annie laying in the bed. It's Judith. Look, it's Judith. Yeah. <laughs> My favorite is when she finds PJ's body, yeah. right? So she opens the cabinet and she's like, Wah. it's you also know? confusing because he's not at his original house and it's no. not Laurie Strode who we think might actually be, you know, aligning with his sister. Like, no, like he's, it's all confused a little bit. Like, just don't think too hard about it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, really it's, it's all about discovering the bodies is all yeah. that it is, you yeah. know, and, and to scare Lori, right. That's true. To lead on to the, the ending of the movie. And then for a, an interesting stair zoom that I'm still on the fence of a lot of filmmakers like that, right. That it was kind of inventive, like zooming like, as she falls down the stairs or whatever. Okay. Falls down the, off the banister and falls to the floor. Yeah. And uh, the camera kind of zooms in on the stairs as she's falling, and it's fairly effective, but I'm still like, it's like, mm. <laughs> I, don't I don't know that I've ever noticed that. Oh, it's a kind of a famous moment. I may have to watch it again, yeah. just to release that part. For those of us in the know. I mean, I get super wrapped up into Halloween. Maybe it's just me and like a certain subreddit. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, like, I... like. I've seen Halloween many, many times, and I, I'm always scared by it every single time that I watch it. And it's really just the end of the movie that scares me a lot. So I'm sort of wrapped up in that. So yeah. But uh, yeah, she runs across the street to escape Michael, right? And gets inside, hides the kids, hides herself in a closet. Hide gets, your kids, hide your wives. <laughs> grab a hanger. <laughs> I mean, she does all the things she needs to do. <laughs> All the things you're supposed to do. He breaks into the closet, which I think is another really famous moment in this movie where she's like shrieking, screaming, holding that hanger. And he's just like tearing the door down to get in. at. I don't know. I feel like it holds that moment a little too long where he's just like pushing against the closet doors over and over again. And I'm like, dude, just like put punch your goddamn fist through it. You know, I mean, he slapped a window broke earlier <laughs> I know, <laughs> and he can't do something with this like fucking Venetian blind door. I mean, like you know, those fucking bifold doors are nothing. Please. <laughs> I can break one of those with just a couple slaps. <laughs> Bifold door erasure. <laughs> but then we get into the moments of this movie where Michael never seems to be dead, 
right? No. So he's already come back. He's just sleeping. A couple times. <laughs> he got stabbed in the neck. He gets stabbed in the eye. Every time he gets up and he keeps fighting with Lori. But Loomis is there, mm-hmm. you know, eventually. Yeah, that's right. And saves the day. Yeah. So, I mean, Lori fought valiantly, right? Mm-hmm. But Loomis comes in and he runs into the bullet six times. Yep, and it's kind of a it's it's kind of a downer ending, uh, but not really because it's so fun. I don't know because it's it's more intriguing than anything else because he looks down and the body's gone. Yeah, where you expect it, you know, you think it's finally taken care of, and it's just like, and that's how the movie ends, and it's it's creeped a lot of people out with having that ending. I mean, I I, I like the ending of this movie. I still do. I mean, I I like when things are open ended sometimes, right? It really is up to the filmmakers that come after this who make the sequels to make it as good, right? Yeah, and you almost can't, you know, and and really it's that that moment and that 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 build up to that moment, and then of course that score just like hits right right as you see that empty ground, mm-hmm. you know. Dun, 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 dun. I mean, I've been singing it all day. So. <laughs> <laughs> the one thing the ending is missing, really, is Doctor Loomis saying once again, "He's gone from here. The evil has gone from here." I just needed that one more time at the end of the movie. My Instead, God, that's true. You've you've fixed it. He just looks perplexed, and I'm like, "What?" <laughs> I'm like, "Don't you have something else to say?" I mean, you fixed what wasn't broken. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, let's talk about a little bit the background. Okay, yeah, because there's, I mean, like, I feel like there's a lot of mythology around Halloween, both in its sequels and in its production and history. Oh, right? sure, yeah. And obviously it was a shoestring budget, but it was inspired by a lot, right? Obviously, like, there's a lot of conversation about how this might have really been at least germinated. The original germ of this movie was really meant as kind of a sequel to Black Christmas. Yeah, and I, I think that we talked about that during our Black Christmas episode. That's right. right? Mm-hmm. And I know that the producer to this movie really just wanted to sort of like cash in on, you know, that kind of movie. I think he 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 wanted he went to John Carpenter and said, I want to have a movie that's about babysitters that get killed. Go do it. Yeah. Right. And then Carpenter sort of wrote the script wisely around a holiday. Right. That's right. Yeah. Well, I mean, he was kind of told to, I want you to write something. And we'll get a little bit later into that. But it was also inspired by, you know, like Exorcist with a Creepy Child, okay. uh, a single shot opening somewhere to the like, touch of evil and oh a number God, of others. Right. Yeah. Uh, POV Gialli, like Mario Bava and Dario Argento, Peeping Tom, you know, mm-hmm. Black Christmas even did POV before this. And even Jaws, you know, and I just remember that like uh, – uh, Loomis's description of the the boy's eyes or whatever reminded me of the Jaws line that came out a couple of years before, like black eyes, a doll's eyes, you know, and the the <laughs> devil's eyes thing. There's, there's a little lot going on here with inspiration, and I don't know that anything was direct, but the, all of this stuff is rattling around in, in John Carpenter's head, I think, you know, and it's not wholly original; it's just condensed and simplified, making it more effective. And I agree. I think that's what makes this movie really special, right? Mm-hmm. Is that like it's it's very simple, it's to the point, and it it takes a while for you to get to know the characters, and then it just starts the movie and just rapidly goes through it. I think that's perfect. Like I was talking to you about another movie that I watched recently today, and that's exactly how I feel about that, right? That's what makes good horror movies, right? It doesn't have to be original because most of them are not. Yeah. Just keep it simple and you know, do what you need to do and it's going to be an effective and good movie. Yeah. I mean, honestly, we could get into, we could deep dive into anything, any facet of this, but I feel like like nothing really, no human is really capable of truly original thought, right? Everything builds on the next thing. Yeah. Right. And nothing is made in a vacuum. 
Right. Well, and there are like like six plot lines or something like that that everything is like based on. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean, yeah, like, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, there's an argument to be made. Uh, Carpenter himself described the film as quote true crass exploitation. I decided to make a film I would love to have seen as a kid, full of cheap tricks like a haunted house at a fair where you walk down the corridor and things jump out at you. Well, well, simple as that. Yeah. I mean. <laughs> After viewing Carpenter's film Assault on Precinct 13, a lot of people think that Halloween is somehow John Carpenter's favorite thing. They keep hearing like student film or like independent film and none of that's really true, right? It isn't independent, but it's also not his first movie. And he did Assault on Precinct 13. Um, and at the Milan Film Festival, independent film producer Erwin Yablins and financier Mustafa Akkad sought out Carpenter to direct a film for them about a psychotic killer that stalked babysitters. So it wasn't even his original idea, right? So in an interview with Fangoria Magazine, Yablins stated, I was thinking what would make sense in the horror genre and what I wanted to do was make a picture that had the same impact as The Exorcist. And Carpenter agreed to direct the film contingent on his having full creative control and was paid $10,000 for his work, which including the writing, directing, and scoring of the film, obviously. yeah. And he and his then-girlfriend, Deborah Hill, began drafting a story originally titled The Babysitter Murders. Yablin subsequently suggested setting the movie on Halloween night and naming it Halloween instead, to which Carpenter agreed and developed a story. Carpenter said of the basic concept, Halloween night, it has never been the theme in a film. My idea was to do an old haunted house film. Let's take a moment to talk about John Carpenter for a minute, shall we? Sure. I mean, because he has become quite possibly one of the most prolific horror movie directors ever, right? Uh, I think, especially for people of our age, you know, we look back at some of the movies that he made in the 80s and early 90s and maybe with a little bit of a nostalgia boner. But I like to think that John Carpenter makes really good taut horror movies. Yeah. Right. And even the ones that are more like horror adjacent, you know, are are still really good because he's he's gone into more actiony movies like Assault on Precinct 13 or Escape from New York or L.A. Right. And then he's made movies like Starman or like Ghosts of Mars that have a more like sci fi twinge to them. Vampires, right. Yeah. yeah. Even vampires. And I mean, like, I just think that his movies are by and largely really, really good. And I'm glad that he started down a path of making horror movies. Yeah. I would say about a third of his movies are really, really good. Another third are pretty good. Okay. And then another third are pretty terrible. I don't, I mean, I don't know that I would call any of them terrible. He's got a lot of movies. He's got a big yeah. catalog. He does. You know, that's another thing. He's, uh, he's really prolific, especially compared to some others in the genre, even compared to like Jorge, you know, or, um, you know, Wes Craven. I mean, Craven has a lot of movies too, you know, but not, not quite to the level of Carpenter. I think Carpenter has really, he really produced a lot of output. Right. Yeah. And he like he always was making movies. And um, and I know that he enjoyed that. Right. I, I just I really, really, really appreciate Carpenter's work. And I I have no problems going back and watching these movies because a lot of the times I I enjoy it as much as I do on second or third rewatches. I mean, hell, I've mm-hmm. seen Christine a thousand and one times, you yeah. know, but I think his movies are just super, super enjoyable. And now I'll stop gushing about John Carpenter. So. Yeah. I think Mouths of Madness is another call yeah. out, you know. Um, I mean, Prince of Darkness is Prince an Darkness. excellent movie. Yeah. You know, I mean, he he makes really good movies with really interesting characters. And they're all very scary in their own right. Yeah. So. 
And as for the uh, comparisons to Black Christmas, uh, film director Bob Clark suggested in an interview released in 2005 that Carpenter had asked him for his own ideas for a sequel to his 1974 film Black Christmas that featured an unseen and motiveless killer murdering students in a university sorority house. In 2005, Clark stated, I did a film about three years later started a film with John Carpenter and it was his first film for Warner brothers, which picked up black Christmas. He asked me if I was ever going to do a sequel. And I said, no, I was through with horror and I didn't come into the business to do just horror anyway. And he said, well, what would you do if you did do a sequel? And I said, it would be the next year. And the guy would have actually been caught escape from a mental institution, go back to the house and they would start all over again. And I would call it Halloween. The truth is John didn't copy Black Christmas. He wrote a script, directed the script, did the casting. Halloween is his movie. And besides, the script came to him already titled in any way. He liked Black Christmas and may have been influenced by it, but in no way did John Carpenter copy the idea. Fifteen other people at that time had thought to do a movie called Halloween, but the script came to John with that title on it, except that John Carpenter wrote that script. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, I feel like there's a the truth is kind of in between. Obviously, he kind of germinated that idea for that sequel, really liked it. You know, and he was approached for this other idea about Halloween and he kind of married the two. That's right. I mean, and again, like mythology, like I said earlier, mythology, both in the movies and in like the history of this film. I mean, I think that a lot of people, if they were like quizzed about it, would say things like this, bring up these kind of anecdotes or maybe even some information that's not necessarily true. So, well, there's a lot more anecdotes about the, the making the production of this movie, uh, including for the casting. Okay. Yeah. So the cast of Halloween included veteran actor, Donald Pleasance, as we've noted, and then unknown actress, Jamie Lee Curtis, the low budget limited the number of big names that Carpenter could attract. And most of the actors received very little compensation for their roles. Pleasance was the, was paid the highest at $20,000 and Curtis received 8,000. Nick Castle earned only $25 a day. Jesus. Yeah. Wait, Donald Pleasance made more money. So he was paid more money than John Carpenter who wrote, directed and scored them. Yeah. Because he was a big name. He had a big career behind him, right? And John Carpenter really didn't. But John Carpenter got 10% of proceeds. Which, in the long run, really fucking bait off. Well, he right? was a millionaire overnight, essentially, yeah, right? Shit. So the role of Dr. Loomis was originally intended for Peter Cushing, um, who, of course, went on and appeared in Grand, as Grand Moff Tarkin in Star Wars in 1977 and, of course, had a hugely long and storied career mm-hmm. in horror, right? And Cushing's agent rejected Carpenter's offer due to the low salary, of course. Okay. And Christopher Lee was also approached for the role. And he, too, turned it down, although the actor later told Carpenter and Hill that declining the role was the biggest mistake he'd made during his career. Probably. Yeah. Yeah, but then suggested Donald Pleasance, who agreed to star because his daughter Lucy, a guitarist, had enjoyed Assault on Precinct 13 for Carpenter's score. Wow. Mm-hmm. I do like that movie a lot, too. Yeah. So what about Jamie Lee Curtis? Well, he said that uh, John Carpenter actually admitted that Jamie Lee wasn't his first choice for Laurie. Um, and he had no idea who she was. She was 19 and in a TV show at the time, but he didn't watch TV. Okay. So he originally wanted to cast Anne Lockhart, the daughter of June Lockhart from Lassie, <laughs> okay. as Laurie's load. <laughs> Laurie's load? I yeah. forgot about that shit. <laughs> yeah, we were going to make a t shirt. We need to. Laurie's uh, load. However, Lockhart had commitments to several other films and television projects, and Hill says of learning that Jamie Lee was the daughter of psycho actress Janet Lee, I knew casting Jamie Lee would be great publicity for the film because her mother wasn't psycho. So they basically just hired her based on publicity and availability. And that's that's perfectly fine. You know what I mean? If if you're going to have a name or at least someone to like – I mean – 
Janet Lee by that time was a star, right? And not for many movies, right? It's like it was her big break and she was only in a very small part of that movie, but memorable. Right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, and I think that Jamie Lee would go on to have a much larger career than her mother, right? So, I mean, sure. let's talk about like the horror credit of Jamie Lee Curtis for a minute. Well, let's you know? talk about, yeah, I want to talk about Jamie Lee Curtis and I also want to talk about Laurie Strode. Okay. So, but as an actress standpoint, right, from casting, like this would go on to, she would go on to make many horror movies directly following this oh, one, yeah. right? Prom Night. Prom Night. <laughs> Halloween 2. Halloween 2. And even before that, Terror Train, yeah. right? And which also revolved around a holiday, you know, a, a wave, if you will. Yes. So, yeah, I recently listened to an interview with Jamie Lee Curtis and she uh, someone called it called it a wave, a wave of horror films. And she disagreed. But I think that we can all agree that in the late 70s and early 80s, there were a lot of Jamie Lee Curtis horror movies. The Fog, for crying out loud. I mean, she made a lot of them. And while she would go away from that later in her career to make more comedies and action movies, she would eventually come back to horror again to do two more Halloween movies and then a third one later on and Virus and many other horror movies, right? So she's all over the horror genre. Yeah. And well, she should be. Yeah, I think she's really good in horror movies. I think she does an excellent job every time that she's in them. Yeah. So let's talk about Laurie Strode herself, right? Okay. Because I feel like there's a there's something going on with this movie where it's taking itself maybe a little too seriously and everyone's a little bit surreal or funhouse mirror, like caricatures, maybe one dimensional. I feel like she is on the outside looking in, like she's the audience and nearly the only grounded or multidimensional person in the entire movie. She's almost the only thing in the movie that brings it sky high drama, like down to earth and believable. And normally I'd be critical of a celebrity or legacy casting, but honestly, I'm not sure this movie would have worked without her. Yeah. I can't think of anybody that I would put in her spot, at least not at the time that it was made. You know, if you're going to go with a household name, like I, I couldn't pinpoint somebody who could do it that believably. I think you're right. I think that she brings a lot. I think that Jamie Lee Curtis brings a lot to this role. She brings a lot of naturalism. Yes. And I, I truly believe everything that she's doing. Yeah, she's the studious brunette who answers questions in class while not even paying attention. But I I believe it fully. When she's scared, I fully believe it. Well, everyone know? else is theater. You know what I mean? Like, especially Donald Pleasance, oh, right? Course. And she is film, right? She's, yeah. she's normal life. That's true. I mean, and even compared to the other, like, her friends, right? Who are somewhat more of a like caricature of what teenagers should be or how they act or talk, maybe at the time. I mean, she really does bring this level of believability to that role and to the movie, which makes it as scary as it is. Yeah. Right. I mean, because we've seen horror movies where like the characters don't act in a believable way and it does affect the audience. We're not as scared. Watching Laurie Strode throughout this night, throughout the night, really, like really just makes you terrified all the way through it. Yeah. Well, speaking of terrified, let's talk about Nancy Kyes for a second. I love her. Oh, she was also a relatively no- unknown actress um, credited in the film as actually Nancy Loomis, mm-hmm. weirdly, and was cast as Laurie's outspoken friend, Annie Brackett, a daughter of Haddonfield Sheriff Lee Brackett, played by Charles Cyphers. And uh, Kyes had previously starred in Assault on Precinct 13, as had Cyphers, right. and happened to be dating Halloween art director Tommy Lee Wallace while filming be- when filming began. So it's kind of just the stars aligned in a couple different areas for her to be in that role. 
And I think I think that's good. I mean, I know that like John Carpenter came out of the UCLA like film school, right? As did a lot of famous directors of his time. And I'm sure these people sort of all worked together, right? In different projects. And so names would be dropped and they would come on and, and work for other things. I know like the, the DP of this movie also made a lot of porn. You know what I mean? <laughs> so and he also came from UCLA. But uh, I, I really like Annie. I think Annie is one of my favorite characters in this movie. She's like my spirit character, maybe. Mm. Like she's so like smart-assed and sarcastic and just funny, but also real. I mean, like I truly believe that they're friends. Yeah, of know? the three, she's like the second most real, I, I think. You know, yeah. because obviously PJ Souls is a little bit more of a caricature. That's right. I think PJ Souls is there for a very specific reason. But she was handpicked, right? She was handpicked, uh, and her part was actually written for her really? to play Linda Vander Klock. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, wait, 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 what was her name? <laughs> Linda Vander Klock. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Another loquacious friend of Lori's and is obviously best remembered in the film for her dialogue peppered with the word totally. Totally. Souls was an actress known for her supporting role in Carrie from 1976. And according to Souls, she was told after being cast that Carpenter had written the role for her in mind. Souls then husband actor Dennis Quaid <sighs> was considered for the role of Bob Sims, Linda's boyfriend, but was unable to perform the role due to prior work commitments. And there's another little anecdote there. I think when the, they screened it and uh, she's like, you interested in anything or whatever, when she has her, you know, her tits out or whatever. Uh-huh. And uh, someone in the audience right behind her and Dennis Quaid said, hell yeah, I am or whatever. And and Dennis had to like lean in and be like, hey, do you want me to say something to him? And she was like, no, totally. Not. <laughs> totally down. <laughs> <laughs> BJ Souls is amazing every time I see her. I love her and Carrie. She doesn't have a lot to do in that movie, but she's memorable, right? As one of the mean girls. Uh, rock and roll high school. You know, I mean, she's just she's just fun in these like late 70s movies. So I'm all I'm all about PJ yeah. Souls. But she's no big Ryan. And her fucking shoes in this movie. I swear she's walking around with these like tall ass wedge shoes. And I'm like, <laughs> give me a pair, please. I want them so bad. Well, moving on to the man himself, the role of the shape, Nick Castle, as the masked Michael Myers, who befriended Carpenter while they attended the University of Southern California, as we were just talking about. And after Halloween, Castle actually became a director, taking the helm of films such as The Last Starfighter, Love it. The Boy Who Could Fly. Dennis the Menace and Major Payne. I have not fucking thought about the movie The Boy Who Could Fly in so many years. You're blowing my mind right now how much I love that movie when I was a kid. I literally have not thought about that movie in like 30 fucking years. Oh my God, he directed that? Yep. And The Last Starfighter. <laughs> Last Starfighter is excellent. I remember man. Dennis the Menace and I also remember Major Payne Major as Payne a comedy. Yeah. yeah. That's, I mean, I didn't know that he was a director until you were talking about it today off mic. Um, and he's playing Michael Myers today, you know, in right. Halloween Kills and, and the 2018 one. And he's a horror convention staple. I mean, yeah. like, if you want to meet Nick Castle, you have every opportunity to do so. Yeah, so, I think we saw him. Yeah. I mean, I've got, I got his autograph, like, one of the first time. Like, the first was it right there. before, right after Meg Foster made out with you? No, no, no. This was many years ago. Mick Foster made out with me at one of the more recent conventions we went to, which is a much better time than when I met Nick Castle, who's also not ugly, but... And when What's-His-Face drooled on me? (laughs) Fucking Lance Henriksen. (laughs) (laughs) I will never forget getting smooched all over my face by Meg Foster. It is like one of my proudest moments. (laughs) Just saw her in Deepest Creepers 3. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) she was the best thing about that movie i mean she's good in everything anyway so let's talk about the filming a little bit 
Okay. Yeah. So obviously we've mentioned it's a shoestring budget. Uh, they had fake fall leaves because this was <laughs> this was fall filmed in California. There's <laughs> right. palm trees. Like Pasadena. So they had to do like angles to where they wouldn't get the palm trees. You could see the green leaves still, I you know. know, and you know. <laughs> uh, they had real families with their put their kids in costumes for the Halloween scenes. Like, yeah, everything was done. I mean, the whole wardrobe for, for Jamie Lee Curtis was bought at JCPenney. Like <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. hundred dollars. It is a shoestring budget. Yeah. So if you think about it, most of the budget for this movie is just to pay the people to pay all the the people and then basically equipment essentially and that's basically it i mean they were just making a movie right <laughs> i mean because i think that we learned like like i mentioned earlier i mean like the texas chainsaw massacre was also an independent horror film mm-hmm. and it made a lot of money i think technically it made more money than uh halloween did based on its budget right but i, I i've heard some stories that the texas chainsaw massacre was funded by the mob and so no one really knew how much it made because those books are what they are but that's <laughs> that's another part of the whole fucking mythology those books are a little overdone but i mean like horror movies were starting to become very profitable or always had been you know throughout time and so like if you wanted to make money you make a horror movie and here here we have halloween right yeah well, I mean, and they shot it pretty quick. Like Loomis did all his scenes. Daniel Pleasance, Donald Pleasance did his scenes in like five days and that's it. Yeah. Right. And so um, they shot it out of order, you know, um, you know, to, to get everyone like certain actors. So they would be done, you know, on and done. And uh, they couldn't have like a long, you know, thing. They couldn't put people up in their hotels or whatever. Right. And um, he worked with the cast to, you know, try and create a desired effect of terror and suspense throughout the film and have some sort of consistency there. So according to Jamie Lee Curtis, Carpenter actually created a fear meter because the film was shot out of sequence and she wasn't sure what the character's level of terror should be in certain scenes. And she had uh, different facial expressions and scream volumes for each level on that meter. That is some fucking method acting. I love it. <laughs> God. Um this house is still standing too. Do you know that? Like it's in, in, in Pasadena. Yeah. It was not like a farmlands or whatever. It was kind of old and dilapidated. And now it's like a chiropractic office. Yeah. It's no, I think it makes actual, like an actual house. Like one of the houses are, it's owned by Michael Doherty or something like that. There's a couple of houses in this, but I was talking about the Myers house. Oh no. I think it's another one. The, one of the babysitting houses. Okay. Kind of, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. And, and obviously the music was done by John Carpenter. Uh, which lacks any kind of symphonic soundtrack in the film score consists of a piano melody played in the 10 8 or the complex 5 4 time signature composed and performed obviously by carpenter with carpenter admitting that the music was inspired by dario argentis suspiria which also influenced the film's slightly surreal color scheme and william friedkin's the exorcist obviously it yeah. sounds like everyone that watches halloween and have seen the exorcist first say it sounds like exorcist yeah it sounds exactly like tubular bells yeah i mean it <laughs> but i mean and they're both like really iconic pieces of horror like score right yeah um although i feel like halloween is more accessible and probably more recognized. it's simple again it's stripped down and is more simple and i can't i can i can i know exorcist when i hear it but compared to that to halloween i can i can whistle halloween right now right but exorcist i'd have to like think about it for a second you're right because i'm sitting here thinking about it all i'm thinking about is halloween (laughs) (laughs) yeah love it so there's a lot of themes and tropes in this movie that I'd like to talk about a little bit. Yeah, I think this movie is discussed a lot academically, too. So there's a lot of things. Right. And I think the first thing is the one that they really hang on, which is fate. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't know that I have a lot to say about that other than 
I mean, it's kind of on the nose in this movie, really. That I mean, so they're having that classroom discussion, and she has that answer readily available right after she sees Michael Myers, right? Outside yeah. the window. And it's almost like beating you over the head with it. Like, we get it. They're going to meet eventually. They're, they're cro- their paths are going to cross in this movie. Yeah, or is it more than that? Like, they're kind of opposed figures on the same spectrum. You know what I mean? And that's true. And that's something that I didn't really think about. You know, I just, I think about that classroom discussion. I'm like, okay, you know, we get it. Like they're setting up the movie, right? Well, it's also fun to think about that. I don't know, like a franchise level or a over the decades kind of level, but in the universe of this one movie yeah. while they're making it, of course they didn't see Jamie Lee Curtis coming, you know, like 40 years later, to continue anything. You know what I mean? Well, even more than that, because if you talk about the sequels of this movie, like it, there's a big reveal in Halloween 2 that, you know, Laurie Strode's actually his sister, right? It takes these really weird turns that make zero sense to me half the time. I didn't want to know that. <laughs> yeah. It's like there, there is a lot of fate involved in the entire franchise of Halloween, right? Yeah. So, I mean, they, they really do explore that a lot and it's very heavy handed sometimes. So. The other biggest trope I would say here, or really the biggest trope, is the sex is bad trope, right? Yeah. It's almost a funhouse mirror, critical and surreal reflection of the 50s moral standards and the approaching moral panic of the 80s right around the corner, mm-hmm. like a canary in the coal mine for Reagan's revolution. We are. I mean, we, we see that a lot in, in 70s horror movies where like like sex is explored, right? Necessarily as a bad thing. It can be sometimes, but it's not until the 80s that we really like have these slashers that really drive that home. Like those who get those who have sex or do drugs, or do bad things are going to get murdered, right? A la Scream and these rules. Yeah. Well, I think like when you talk to like John Carpenter now, he says that wasn't intentional. You know, it, it was something that they kind of picked up and ran with for all these other as part of the template that was created with Halloween, mm-hmm. you know, and just became kind of a, a thing that wasn't really meant to be a thing. But I think it was kind of there in the in the kind of the mental model or the zeitgeist at the time, maybe. Yeah. I can see so that. I don't know. I don't The jury's out on that. And I think it'll be out for a long, long time. I mean, there are two characters in this movie that have sex and both get murdered. Yeah. Both by Michael. Yeah. You know? And so... Well, even Scream. You could watch Scream's commentary on this, which was that, you know? And Scream also mentioned a couple other tropes that are in this, like the I'll be right back line and, Mm -hmm. you know, the bad guy isn't dead trope. Yeah. That happens a lot in this movie. Michael Myers is always waking up from some sort of, like, fatal injury. There's also some minor tropes that are, you know, as old as time, like the kick the dog trope. You know, he got hungry. <laughs> oh, my God. Lord. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I think they found a dog and then they and then they see him kill another dog. That's right. Right. So there's like at least two dogs in this movie are killed. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's another thing just to kind of double down on the he's evil, you know. Murdering like, dogs. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's the one thing you're not supposed to do in a horror movie that everyone like freaks out about. Speaking of which, it's also another trip as a character, as a device. Michael does nothing but murder people for which he has no motive and from which he gets no benefit. Mm-hmm. Right. You could kind of assign a motive there, but it doesn't really make sense, especially because we noted earlier who he's going after and why. Yeah, I mean, and we don't get to know his sister well enough to, like, say that he's, like, following people that sort of look like her or act like her. Like, she dies very quickly in the movie, and we don't get to see very much of it because that mask is over the camera, right? Yeah. And, um, yeah, but, yeah, he's he's one of the first, like, 
Well, not even one of the first villains who has no motive to kill people because in Black Christmas, they really don't know their motive. We don't even know who the killer was, really. Motiveless. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, this was inspired by a a number of things, but the trope kind of ties into kind of more of an official trope was called the destroyer of worlds, right? Mm -hmm. Society's deadliest creation is a person with nothing left to lose. Oh, my God. And that sometimes makes the best horror movies. Right. And that's, that's where that societal commentary comes in with society created this person. And then we get a lot of those questions about like the sex and like, you know, maniac comes to mind, right? Mm -hmm. How did this killer get formed? Well, he was exposed too much to sex as a child, you know, which kind of feeds into that trope. And it's, it's feeding into a bunch of other tropes too. And let's not forget that, you know, in 1978, we have already had a slew of serial killers, right? Like these, that word, that idea was slowly coming into consciousness, right? Yeah. And it sort of exploded in the eighties too. And I think that a lot of people, were sort of like taken aback by the idea that somebody in real life could do something like this, right? Should kill multiple people for seemingly no reason, right? So I mean, scary on multiple levels and in, in a real world like context. Well, the other side of that coin is the final girl trope, right? Yeah. And if we were ever going to talk about the final girl trope or deconstruct it, I think now is the time because this is the movie that's most associated with it, right? Even though it's not the first movie with the final girl trope, but Black Christmas and a number of others, yeah, you know, I would say like this is probably the most famous for it or earliest example, uh, biggest example. I think it really started a whole line of them. Yes. Yeah. It created a template in multiple ways and this is one of them. And I, I'm almost thinking like the final girl, like a lot of people think of it as like kind of a feminist feminine power thing and i don't i'm not sure or convinced that it is i wonder if it's sexist right like or even given recent news is it something akin to missing white girl syndrome okay are these women supposed to be a symbol of all that is supposed to be good pure chaste or even the center and, and progenitor of the 50s nuclear family the ones that don't fit that mold seem to die well, yeah, and I think that goes back to some of the other tropes that we had already talked about in this, like sex is bad, right? I mean, that's why the people are dying because they're making the wrong choices, the choices that people shouldn't make in society, right? This reminds me a lot of Carol Clover's book, uh, Men, Women, and Chainsaws, right, where she really talks about the final girl as a trope. And, you know, throughout all these movies and she talks about, you know, like sex, right. And sex is weapon and, you know, the weapons that these killers are actually using against these women that are awfully like um, uh, penetrative, right. Like knives and chainsaws and things like that. But I don't know that I would call it sexist. I would call it more feminist, but I kind of align to that woman's reading of these things. Right. I really like that text a lot. You know what I mean? Yeah, there's a lot of, of journalism on this. There's a lot of yeah. thought and there's a lot of academic theory on Final Girl. I think there's whole books written about kind of centered on the idea of it. And I do think there's a darker side to that trope. You know, and I do think that like the, it's this vessel that the audience can have the most empathy for from these writers' perspectives that it's not a white man. It's not a, certainly not any minority, certainly back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, no. you know, but and it's not a child because adult audiences aren't going to have as much empathy for a child. So, like, so much as they would like a kick to the dog moment. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like yeah. it's going to be this white woman that is like chaste and represents the good, wholesome, you know, society, at least in part. And I think that's what happened at least when they picked up this like baton and ran with it. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, because 
mean, like we will say, we've said before, this movie like started a whole legacy of slasher movies, right? It, it wasn't the first, obviously, but it was the most famous at the time. I think that this is one of the first instances where a low budget independent horror movie really played to mainstream America. I mean, my God, it was fucking premiered in Kansas City, Missouri, for God's sakes. You know what I mean? And I think a lot of people went to go see this movie at the time and it did create this particular trope. And I think that people took this character of Laurie Strode and put her into other situations, right? Like Laurie Strode, we could see in every other slasher movie that comes after it. Well, with an exception, right? Because she is not necessarily tough. And it ties into that fate thing, right? Like she was very lucky. Mm -hmm. That's like maybe they're diametrically opposed and it's fate and they really can't kill each other. Would they have been going at each other round and round again until a third party intervenes? She was saved in quotes, you know, by Dr. Loomis. Right. And I feel like there's other final girls like Sydney Prescott that kind of save themselves. True. She, at least in this example, had to be saved. I think almost all. Almost every other instance of Final Girl, aside from Laurie Strode, sort of saves herself. Maybe, you know, other filmmakers or writers sort of saw that. I mean, I'm not saying that Laurie Strode isn't scrappy. She's scrappy as all get out, you know? I mean, she has knitting needles and wire hangers at her disposal, and she fights to live, which is good, you know? And I think that's a really good component of what makes a Final Girl. But you're right. At the end of the day, a man comes and saves her. We have people like Nancy Thompson from A Nightmare on Elm Street who creates an entire series of booby traps in a house to save herself, right? Yeah. Or Sydney Prescott, like you just said. Of course, these are all also white women. They you know? took it and they, yeah. they made it into a more of a traditional hero role. Right. You know, hero wears a thousand faces, blah, blah, blah. I don't want to get too deep into it I academically. Know. I feel like we already have, but... Well, that's fine. It's yeah. just, you know, I feel like, is the final girl, do they have to save themselves? I, or do they just have to be final? I, mean, I guess that's the question, you know? I mean... So I, I think that in terms of movies now, right, if you have a girl that lasts till the end of the movie and she lives, they would consider to be the final girl only because there's the possibility of a sequel. Right. Yeah, I don't think you have to else. get too granular yeah. with it. Like, does she have to be studious and does she, does she have to be a brunette? You know, <laughs> I mean, in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, she was blonde, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, maybe this movie just sort of like started all that sort of thing. But yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, she, she was rescued and I'm not sure if it was luck or not. I think she she fought enough. So Obviously, this movie has a legacy. Clearly. Yeah. Um, The major themes present in Halloween also become common in the slasher films that it inspired, Mm -hmm. as we have discussed so far. Uh, Film scholar Pat Gill notes that in Halloween, there's a theme of absentee parents, but films such as A Nightmare on Elm Street and Friday the 13th feature the parents becoming directly responsible for the creation of the killer. Yep. Uh, I think that's that trope is kind of followed and kind of commented on a little bit, like in films like It Follows, which is kind of the new wave, the new, new wave horror, mm-hmm. uh, where the parents literally aren't their faces. You can hear them, but their faces are like never on on camera. Yeah. I mean, I, I think like in this movie, the, the only parent that really stands out to me is Annie's father because he's the sheriff. Right. But he doesn't even seem to be that active in her own particular life. He certainly doesn't save his daughter from anything. Right. No. But, I mean, he's there in the town. I mean, like, Lori's parents, we don't really see, except to, like, drop a key off, right? I mean, these kids are left to their own devices, and, you know, this is what happens to them. It would have been an interesting post credit scene, his reaction, especially to Loomis, who said, like, we're all going to be upset that you let him go if you're, if you're right. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it ends up killing his daughter. Yeah. Obviously, uh, there are slasher films that preceded Halloween, like we've mentioned, such as Silent Night, Bloody Night, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and Black Christmas. 
all in 1974 or before, right? Yeah. Which contained prominent elements of the slasher genre, both involving a groups of teenagers being murdered by a stranger, as well as having the final girl trope. Halloween, however, is considered by historians as being responsible for the new wave of horror films because it not only used these tropes, but it also pioneered many others. I think it really did. It really, it really started an entire like just series of movies that really inundated horror culture. Right? Well, it started injecting the supernatural a little bit more into it. I think, which yeah, really helped on. with like Nightmare on Elm Street and a couple of others, obviously, uh, getting played out so much that it became like super meta and scream. And then we get a new, new wave after that. But yeah, because of that, it is ultimately widely and critically considered the blueprint for all slashers and the model against which all subsequent films are judged. And I would totally stand by that, honestly. Yeah. So what does Halloween mean to you? What, the holiday or the movie? The movie. The movie we're deep diving. The movie we're recording about right now. <laughs> I I fucking love Halloween. I just do. I I saw this when I was probably about twelve or thirteen years old, and I have watched it many times since. Probably up to twenty times at this point, you know. Mm. And I'm always surprised by it. I was watching it one time with a friend and we were maybe about 16 years old. And I had seen it a handful of times, like five or six times by then. And uh, I was scared that night watching it. And like friends were making fun of me. Like, haven't you seen this before? I'm like, yeah, but it gets me every time, you know, I mean, it's effective to me. It's effective as a horror movie. And I, I like it very much. I like the villain very much. And I like Laurie Strode a lot. It just so happens that the rest of the franchise for me is really shittacular, you know? And so, yeah, yeah I just... But yeah, it sounds like you're not enjoying it in a vacuum. You can't because yeah. you know that. You know, like, I haven't seen many of those sequels. I've seen the Rob Zombie ones and I've seen the latest, you know, from uh, 2018, etc. Yeah. And, of course, we're about to go and see um, the newest one, Halloween Kills. Yeah. Uh, and I've, of course, I've seen Halloween three season of the witch, which isn't really related, but, um, with this one, I kind of saw a little bit later, but like you, I can't see it in a vacuum. I know the scrappy story of how it was made. Mm -hmm. I know John Carpenter's score and, and how he scores other things. And I've seen other Car John Carpenter and I know the story of, of Jamie, Jamie Lee Curtis. And, you know, it, it doesn't scare me. It's, it's a little too basic, uh, for me, like a movie has to do you know, extraordinary things to scare me these days. I don't, it's just me, but that's not why I'm attracted to horror movies anyway. It's the practice of extreme empathy. It's uh, intrigue. It's mystery. You know, uh, that's why I like it so much. Um, and I'm the total opposite when it comes to watching horror movies. And I think this is why we have a podcast, right? It's because yeah. I'm easily scared by a lot of things. You know, I'm drinking a White Claw right now, so I can't be any more basic. But I mean, I, I really <laughs> just fucking I mean, I love Halloween and I, I like Halloween as as a horror movie. Like we just use the word blueprint. And I think that this is sort of like a really good blueprint for any kind of horror movie slasher or not. I think it's effectively made and and presented and is a classic and it's in, in its own right. Well, right? something to be said about simplicity. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree with that. And it's a very, very simple movie. And that makes it just as effective as possible. And we should judge it on its surface where it counts. <laughs> like people. <laughs> do you have any fun facts? Yes, I do. Oh, my God, I do. A shit ton? Yeah, but you probably already know them. I know. And most people do because, I mean, this movie has been analyzed a lot. But well, yeah. still, I basically uh, kept everything that I researched. I kind of kept track of that I didn't know and kind of, you know, learned along the way. Okay. Starting with Deborah Hill wrote most of the dialogue for the female characters with John Carpenter concentrating on the male parts like Dr. Loomis's speeches. 
Okay, that was probably smart on his point. Yeah. Right. Okay. So John Carpenter composed the score in only four days. <laughs> I mean, I'm not surprised. It's kind of simple, right? But yeah. I mean, that's impressive nonetheless. I couldn't do that shit. Well, he got that meter, right, from his father who would play drums, mm-hmm. right? And so that's kind of where he, he got that meter from. And uh, you could just kind of play it around on a, on a keyboard, even though he can't read notes. I think to this day, he can't read notes. I love John Carpenter's scores, though. He scores mm-hmm. a lot of his movies, mm-hmm. if not all of them, right? And it's so weird, though, like The Thing. Yeah. It's one of my favorite scores that uh, for, for a movie that he's directed, but it wasn't him. It was Ennio Morricone making a score that sounded like John, John Carpenter. Carpenter. Yeah. <laughs> it's so weird. I really like the score for Halloween 3, which he did. You know, he wasn't really involved in that movie, but he did the score for it. Yeah. And I'm like, I was just, it's really good. I love John Carpenter's music. So The Killer is referred to as The Shape. In the script and the credits for the film, the word shape was used by the Salem witch trial judges to describe specters or spirits of the accused doing mischief or harming another person. And I guess that would play into the like um, fantastic parts you were talking about in this, right? Supernatural moments in this movie. I didn't know where they got that term from, the shape. In Halloween, the newest one, 2018, she refers to it. I saw it, the shape. And I'm like, that's non-diegetic. Don't yeah. say that in your goddamn script. Don't. That really bothered me. I don't know. See, I always thought they called it the shade because he's wearing those sort of like black cover- coveralls, right? And has a like a, a expressionless mask on. You call it Michael Myers. You call it the killer or you call it the evil like fucking Dr. Loomis did or whatever. <laughs> the evil's gone from here. The evil's gone. I saw it. The evil. Don't call the it shape. the shape. God damn it. <laughs> no one does. Really. Except for horror nerds. Yeah. So moving on, the stabbing sound effect is actually a knife stabbing a watermelon. (laughs) As per tradition. I mean, I've made that sound effect in my own kitchen. (laughs) (laughs) And to ensure Michael Myers would break the window of the station wagon as Dr. Loomis approaches the insane asylum, a wrench was adhered to his forearm and hand, and it was then painted flesh-colored to hide from the camera. Well, that explains everything. How he just kind of slapped it (laughs) Open fist. <laughs> just like a, a fucking open palm to the window. I was just like, God, they don't make cars like they used to. Do that, man. I guess not. I almost wanted to go outside and try it myself, but then I had to pay for a new one. The body was all metal, but those windows were saran wrapped. <laughs> <laughs> so Robert England worked on this movie. Did you know that? And I did not. Yeah. Robert England, of course, uh, playing Freddy in the Nightmare on Elm Street series. Uh, revealed in an interview that he worked on the film for only one day and he was responsible for throwing bags of dead leaves on the set. <laughs> Good for him. He was ready for prime time. <laughs> Bitch. <laughs> so Laurie's father is played by Peter Griffith. He is also the father of the famous actress Melanie Griffith and the ex-husband of another Hitchcock veteran, Tippi Hedren. For some reason, this character never shows up again after the original opening scenes of Halloween, and he doesn't even come visit his daughter in the hospital after she's been attacked. No, Laura's just there by herself. (laughs) Not believable. It's not believable post this movie (laughs) in any way whatsoever. So in July 2018 at the San Diego Comic-Con, during a panel discussion with Jamie Lee Curtis, a fan named Joseph Scott told her that he was a victim of a similar home invasion himself. He said, I was scared out of my mind and out of nowhere, this thought came inside of me. What would Jamie Lee Curtis do? And later added, I'm a victor today instead of a victim, just like those people that you were talking about. Yvette Nicole Brown, who hosted the panel, asked him to approach the stage. Curtis, who was moved to tears by Scott's story, stood up and went down the stage and she Aww. greeted him with a hug. 
I really needed to hear that story after listening to that interview with her. That's good. Thank you for including that. And that's true. I think that Jamie Lee Curtis talks a lot about trauma, right? And I know that in our next episode, when we talk about Halloween 2018, we're going to be talking about trauma a lot, right? And um, Oh, sure. You know, so I... uh, Trauma. Trauma. (laughs) She says it that way. (laughs) (laughs) It's a good story, though. I like it. And for my last one, get ready to feel old. Oh, fuck. Jamie Lee Curtis has played Laurie Strode in films released in six different decades. From the 70s to the 2020s. The film Halloween 2 from 1981. Halloween, uh, obviously this one from 1978. Halloween 2 from 1981. Halloween H20, 20 years later from 1998. Halloween Resurrection from 2002. Halloween 2018. And Halloween Kills 2021. Six different decades that you've been alive as well. That is ridiculous. But I'm not 60 years old. Nope. (laughs) (laughs) But you've been alive in six different decades. (laughs) (laughs) so just like our movie that we just deep dive i thought i'd end on a downer (laughs) thank you for that debbie (laughs) god every time i turn around there's some sort of fact about horror movies that make me feel ridiculously old so thank you time does that all on its own so we have some questions to ask about Halloween 1978, like we do about every movie we deep dive into. But I'm skipping our first question because obviously Halloween's a horror movie. It's called Halloween. <laughs> and you sort of answered the second question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Were you scared watching Halloween? No. I was. Uh, less scared on this watch, um, I think, because I was watching the you know Joe Bob version of it from Shudder. But um, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, like, ultimately, I think this movie is very scary. I think it has some moments that are truly frightening. Yeah, if you haven't memorized when he, like, lifts up off the off the floor, you know, and, and when he does certain things, like, but I have. Yeah. Like, so it's, I, I know everything's going to happen, and I'm like, clockwork, I'm like, three, two, one, you know what I mean? So it's not scary, it's just entertaining. And me too. I mean, like, I, I've seen this movie so many times that I know a lot of the dialogue. I, I know exactly when things are going to happen, but just something happens in this movie where I just completely suspend my disbelief and get wrapped up into it it does it effectively and really fucking terrifies me yeah i don't know i don't know what it is about me but that's that's just not how i judge my horror movies and if i did then i'd almost like nothing that's true you know i still rate this movie very highly and we'll get into that right now so (laughs) out of five stars what would you rate halloween 1978 i give it a high four I originally gave it four and a half stars after I watched it this time and mm-hmm. went to Letterboxd and logged it. And I was thinking about it. And, and mostly I was thinking about its, its legacy and sequels, right? And I was like, okay, you know, it went in really bad directions. This is a really good movie, but it's not four and a half stars. So four, a high four for me as well. I think it's yeah. really well made and has stood the test of time. Yeah. And I think that, Everybody in the world has seen this movie. Whether you like horror movies or not, everybody has seen Halloween. They know who Michael Myers is. It has just like reached this pinnacle of pop culture that has invaded everything. That's right. Very accessible and a well-made, entertaining, scary movie. And I almost can't believe it's taking us this long in our podcast careers to cover it i think that a lot of people talk about halloween though you know what i mean and so when we were picking movies originally we were picking things that we like and we both like halloween yes but it's never at the top of our lists right like how often do we just sit down and talk about halloween on its own i think this is the probably the longest that you and i've ever talked about this movie yeah 
Easily. So, all right. So lastly, and some might say most importantly, who's the hottest guy in Halloween? The answer is, of course, Charles Cyphers. The sheriff? Yes. You can see all that bristling, burly hair sneaking out of his white undershirt. Yeah, he does have a lot of 70s chest hair. Just like I have a lot of, like, 2020s chest hair. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, To me, the hottest guy in Halloween is Judith Meyer's boyfriend, right? We don't get to see a whole lot of him, but he comes down the stairs like putting his shirt on and he looks kind of hot to me. Mm. The rest of them I can take or leave. Hairless twink. He's kind of built. I don't know if he's a twink. He's hairless. He's a twink. I know. <laughs> he's no Dennis Quaid, that's for sure. <laughs> no. Oh, my God. If, if he were in this movie, that would be the answer to the question. Dennis Quaid <laughs> is fucking fine. God. <laughs> Give me Dennis Quaid any fucking day. Well, guys, I think that about wraps up our deep dive of Halloween. Have you seen it recently? Let us know what you thought. You can do that on social media channels at The Film Flamers on Facebook, Instagram, or Facebook. You can email us at tiredqueens at filmflamers.com. Or you can call our hotline at 972-666-7733. The shape is waiting. Totally. <laughs> Lori's load is waiting for you. <laughs> Lori's load. We have to make that t-shirt. If you like this episode or any of our other episodes, head over to Apple Podcasts or iTunes. Leave us a five-star review. And tell us why you like us. We're going to read that on the next Shooting the Flames. That's right. And if you need some more Film Flamers in your life, as I know you do, head over to patreon.com slash thefilmflamers to find all of our bonus content, including a bonus episode this month from a poll of other Halloween sequels. And I think uh, as of this moment, Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, is winning. Yeah, I think it's leaps and bounds going to be the winner. But you could change that. Go over there and cast your vote. And if you're not a patron, become one. That's right. Be part of the family. One of us. Google Cobble. (laughs) (laughs) And also next week, we're coming out with our deep dive of Halloween 2018. That's right. The sequel that uh, got rid of all the other sequels that I don't really care for. (laughs) And then, of course, we're going to be doing a hot take, if we can find ourselves in a theater near us, on Halloween Kills. That's right. At or the end of the month. I think it's showing on Peacock, too. So. Oh, my God. You're right. You're right. Who has Peacock? My God. You can sign up for that free trial and cancel it immediately after you've watched it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, we're going to be talking about uh, Halloween Kills at the end of the month, giving you our hot take on that. And uh, I'm looking forward to seeing it. I am. It's like a reward. <laughs> it's like a reward. <laughs> looks violent as fuck. So... All right, Chris, it's definitely October, so let's go have some sweet sweet dreams. Totally. (laughs) Michael! Michael! That's the only only dialogue in the start of that movie. And his parents show up and they're like, Michael? (laughs) Like, okay, we get it. We noticed his parents. When did you go up to the parents? He was traumatized. He was traumatized with that knife. Okay. Trauma. Trauma.